Hi everyone and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd. But my mate Paul Wilson. Hi everybody. Paul's a proper historian all the way from Oxford. Thanks Mikey. Okay folks, so here's the show. It's about the unsung heroes, the bizarre twists of fate. Those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually, mate, it's also about the cock-ups. <laughs> yeah. the, those howlers, the moments of madness, they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today. Hi, folks, and look, I've really been looking forward to this episode because it's a part of the world I've never been to and would like to know more about. You're taking us to India, aren't you, Paulie? That's right, Mikey. So today I want to talk about India and one of those massive names from history, the Mughals, oh, yeah. Yeah, and just how much of an impact they had on the whole subcontinent, really. And I want to focus on them, Mikey, because I think this is actually a story that's often been mistold or you know twisted over the years, leaving a lot of people with a very warped idea of what was really going on. Warped ideas, I'm in. All right, well, first up, a lot of accounts, Mikey, present the Mughals as if they are the ones who introduced Islam to the subcontinent and spread it amongst the various Indian states, when, of course, nothing could actually be further from the truth. You see, as early as the time of Muhammad himself in the the 6th century CE, back when India was a mix of Brahman, Hinduism, Buddhism, and let's not forget Jainism, back then, Islam was spreading into various Indian communities along the Arab coastal trade routes to India's west coast. You know, I'm talking about the, the Gujarat Malabar regions. And also further north, with the Arab armies bursting through the Middle East, it wasn't long before they come by land through southern Iran and taken what's now the Sindh province in Pakistan. In fact, the Barwada Mosque, Mikey, in Goga, in Gujarat, that was built in the 620s wow. CE. And Cheruman Juma Mosque in Matala, in, in Kerala, that dates from 629. And according to the legend of the Cheruman Peramals, the mosque at Kudungalo in present-day Kerala was built back in 624. Wow. But the guy I want to talk about first today, Mikey, is somebody who many people see as an absolute hero, although others do call him a bit of a howler. And that person is a guy by the name of Mahmud of Ghazni. And this is the guy in the 11th century who founded the great Ghaznavid dynasty, which would end up ruling not just half of India, but half of Central Asia too. Okay, I'm with you on Mahmud. But Ghazni, not so much. I mean, you're going to have to help me out with that one, mate. Is it a place, a family name? (laughs) Okay, so Ghazni, this is an ancient urban centre in Central Asia, Mikey. One of those crazy cities established way back with Alexander the Great, actually, on his rampage across Asia. It was originally known as Alexandria in Opiana, and it sits in the south of what's now Afghanistan on the road leading down from Kabul to Kandahar. Right, but your man Mahmud, he's in the 11th century, right? That's right, we're in the 11th century now. So, yeah, you, while you've got your crusades going on back in Europe and your old mates, Richard and Saladin, mm-hmm. Sultan Mahmud, he's coming to power in Ghazni, and he actually takes over in the very last years of the 10th century, 998 CE. Now, his full name, Mikey, is Yaman Uddala Abul Kazim Mahmud ibn Sebuktegin. Uh-huh. And while that probably won't mean much to you, it's interesting because those names, they're a combination of Persian and Old Turkic. And that's key, really, because Ghazni, the city, it sees itself at this time very much as part of the Turkic world of Central Asia and the Persian world, a world which at this stage is under the umbrella of the great Abbasid Caliphate in Baghdad mm-hmm. and then the succeeding Samanid dynasty in Persia. So although today we tend to 
associate Afghanistan with Pakistan and the Indian subcontinent, up until this time, like up until the 11th century, India hadn't really been on Ghazni's radar. But I got a feeling that's all about to change. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Okay, so Mahmood, he styles himself as the shadow of God on earth. And although he's highly Persianized in his court and his traditions, he sees northern India, particularly the state of Punjab, as rich lands ripe for the picking, particularly the great city of Lahore. Okay, Paulie, now we've talked about the Punjab before in that great episode about the Sikhs that you did, but this is long before they come on the scene, right? Right, it's going to be a few centuries before Sikhism is actually founded, Mikey. At this time, Punjab is just one of many prosperous states and kingdoms patchworked across northern and central India. And remember, Mikey, a couple of those northern kingdoms, of course, are already under Muslim rule from those earlier Arab army invasions we talked about. Right. Now, I've chosen Mahmood for my hero today, Mikey, for two reasons. Number one, he's integral in tying northern India to Afghanistan, which, as we'll see, becomes so important later on for the Mughals. But also, he's one of the first rulers to really exploit the system of playing one Indian state mm -hmm. or kingdom off against another. Of course, some of the local kings, they do try to unite against it. But be it Gujarat, Kashmir, the Jats, the Jains, Hindu Rajas, Buddhist kings, Mahmud picks them off one by one, just as the Mughals would do later on, and of course the British would in turn do to the Mughals themselves in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. Ah, that perennial howler, the British East India Company. <laughs> exactly. And in terms of Islam in India, Mikey, Mahmud of Ghazni is also key because while he's happy to maintain Hindu and Jain and Buddhist leaders as his vassals, once each state has been conquered, he sets about destroying temples and religious centres, centres such as the, the Great Complex at Mathura, and in their stead, as the now self-proclaimed sultan, he promotes the religion of Islam and the widespread adoption of its cultural traditions. And but does he succeed? Spectacularly. In fact, the Ghaznavid dynasty he founds, Mikey, it goes on to rule Persia, Afghanistan, and crucially for our story, northern India, for almost 200 years. Okay, folks, welcome back. And today, Paul is giving us a good look at an often misunderstood part of Indian history, the Mughals. That's right, Mikey. And we're moving on to my main hero for today, a guy called Babur. Now, that's also a Persian name, Mikey, and it means tiger. And this Babur, like Mahmood earlier on from Ghazni, he's got that same sort of dual background drawing from the Persian and the Turkic Central Asian worlds. And if I'm not much mistaken, Paulie, Afghanistan is going to make another appearance too, right? Precisely. Okay, so we're now in the 15th, coming up to the 16th century. So if you're thinking, you know, Europe and England, you're thinking the early Tudors. And this Babur, he's born in 1483, and he claims he's directly descended from both Timur the Great, Tamburlaine, on his father's side, and no less than Genghis Khan through his mother. He's born in Andijan, Mikey, which is in the Fergana Valley, what's the present-day border between Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan. Right, so we're quite a long way from India. Yeah, quite a long way from India, that's right. But that's where he's born, and he ascends to the throne of Fergana, age 12, and goes on to conquer Samarkand two years later, 1497. But then rebellions break out, unfortunately, for Arman Babu, and he loses both his crowns, and he's actually forced to flee into exile. In India? <laughs> no, not quite. He's actually going to Afghanistan. This is where your Afghanistan prediction comes in, Mikey. You see, the ruling family in Kabul... They're actually a junior branch of the same family as Baba. They're both sets descended from Timur's grandson, Uluq Beg. 
So Baba, he's not just accommodated when he gets there. Rather, because Kabul is actually in a bit of a crisis with a young infant, Abdur Razak Mirza, on the throne, Baba is actually able to take over the throne for himself. And in fact, he uses his small retinue of loyal followers to defeat another rival, the unpopular Mukinbeg, and soon he's actually made Sultan of Kabul, from where he can now start to build himself a new power base. Now, ideally, he would have taken these forces and tried to recapture old Fergana and Samarkand, his old thrones. And in fact, on a couple of occasions, he does actually try. But unfortunately for Baba, that ship really has sailed by this stage, Mikey. And he has to accept the fact that an empire to the north was and would remain out of reach. However, to the south, it did seem that opportunities were presenting themselves, just as they had for our earlier hero, Mahmud of Ghazni. And these were the opportunities to be had in India, if, you know, if Baba is so inclined. And uh, tell me, let me guess, is he? <laughs> yes, he is, Mikey. And in the key twist to our story, he's actually actively encouraged in taking a shine to India by both of the other main forces in this region at this time. You see, as ruler of Afghanistan, Baba now has to keep a bit in step with what his neighbours are doing, particularly the two major powerhouses of this period, the Safavid Empire in Persia, and next door to them, the mighty Ottomans a bit further to the west. Right. Now, I do need to pause here, Mikey, and really highlight this next point, because Baba, he goes down in history as a master of political diplomacy. And it's at times like this story, which I'm about to tell, that really shine a light on why that's so. You see, like I said, he's already manipulated himself the throne in Kabul, despite turning up as an exile on the run. And with his dealings between the Ottomans and the Safavids, he really does come into his own. The Ottomans, of course, they're based in what's now Turkey and also down the east coast of the Mediterranean. And the newly established Safavid Empire under a guy called Ishmael I, they're in control of Persia, modern Iran, modern Iraq. Now, these two empires, Mikey, the Ottomans and the Safavids, they've inherited a rivalry that's been dominating the region for centuries, regularly breaking out into outright warfare. So, of course, it makes sense for them to look to Babur as the new ruler of Afghanistan as a potential ally. But the thing is, Babur, he knows what's really keeping them awake at night, particularly Ishmael in Iran. It's not whether Babur will join them, but that he and his Afghan forces will go over to the other side. And as if by magic, Mikey, you'd be delighted to know I brought in a quick map to illustrate the point. Oh, right. Yeah, I see. Because if Barbour teams up with the Ottomans, then suddenly Ishmael and his Persian Empire, they're trapped in the middle. Precisely. So my man Babo, my hero, he manages to play each side and win more than a few favours, particularly in the form of weapons. Weapons that are far more effective and destructive than those currently being employed, not just in Afghanistan, but crucially anywhere in India. You see, Babo, he negotiates with Salim I, the Ottoman Sultan, known to his friends, Mikey, and this is true, actually. He's known as Salim the Grim, which I always quite like. And Salim, he dispatches to Babo an Ottoman commander called Ustad Ali Kuli with a whole train of high-tech artillery and cannon. And then the Ottomans follow this up with their general Mustafa Rumi, who's the key expert in the use of the new matchlock firearms that the Turks are using. Now, both these generals, they're sent over with promises of more weapons to come, but only, and this is the key bit for both the Ottomans and the Safavids, these supplies and the military know-how that comes with it, the tap will only continue to flow if Babur promises to in no way interfere with what's going on in terms of Ottoman-Safavid relations and to keep his forces pointed firmly in the other direction, i.e. towards India. 
So you could actually say Barbara gets a bit of a lucky break there. Yes, you could say that, Mikey, but it's the way he's able to continually manipulate these negotiations to his advantage without ever antagonising what was a very, very delicate situation. It's this that stands him out as the consummate politician. Okay, so Babo, he's got all these new weapons, he's looking at India, and he's well aware that because of you know the exploits of our earlier friend, Mahmood of Ghazni, in many ways, North India, particularly the Punjab, India is there for the taking. Although by this stage, Punjab is under the suzerainty of the Sultanate of Delhi, so if Babo wants Punjab, he's got to beat Delhi to get it. Now hang on, Paulie, you just said Sultanate of Delhi. So these are Muslim rulers Baba and his would-be Mughal Empire are fighting. Correct. As we said in the first part of the show, quite a bit of northern India has already long been ruled by Muslim rulers, whether it's the Arabs, the Ghaznavids, the Gurids who came after them, the Timurids of Central Asia. That's a lot of Muslim rulers. <laughs> right. In fact, this ruling Muslim Sultanate of Delhi, at one stage he's had control of over three quarters of the whole subcontinent, north, south, east and west. Although, of course, the majority of the population on the ground, the people, the main populace, they are still very much Hindu, Jain, Buddhist. And in fact, now we're up to Babo's time, you've also got the Sikhs emerging as significant players. Now, fortunately for Babo, this last incarnation of the Delhi Sultanate, which is actually ruled by a guy called Ibrahim Lodi of the Lodi dynasty, the state of Delhi is pretty much crumbling by this stage, and Babo has a much easier job of things than many might have predicted. Now, Paulie, if we're now into the early 1500s, isn't this the time when the Portuguese turn up in India as well? Vasco da Gama, correct. His first landing being 1498 down in Goa in a city called Calicut. And actually, Mikey, I think the contrast couldn't be starker, and it really helps to illustrate the point I'm trying to make in today's episode. Because within 50 years, Mikey, Babo and his Mughal successors, they've established a sophisticated, multi-layered, highly calibrated empire, incorporating all sorts of states and peoples, all flourishing and wealthy like never before. Whereas the European invaders, and let's not forget, you know, the Portuguese are essentially at the pinnacle of European exploration and expansion during this period. The Portuguese, for these same 50 years, they're struggling to even maintain a couple of coastal forts. Well, yes, when you put it like that, I, I get your point. Okay, so we're up to 1526, and Babur's forces, with all their superior weaponry, they're marching on Delhi, and by April, they've reached a place called Panipat. Now, Lodi's army, numerically, it's actually superior with about 90,000 soldiers, Mike, and over 100 elephants. But Baba, he shows his military skills are just as sharp as his diplomacy, and by engaging what's become known as the Tulugma strategy, Ibrahim Lodi's army, it's encircled, his men are forced to face direct artillery fire, the war elephants break into a terrifying stampede, and for Babo, the battle is well and truly won, particularly as Ibrahim Lodi himself dies during the melee. Yeah, but that doesn't just give him the whole of India on a plate, does it, mate? No, like we've been saying, India is still very much a patchwork of competing interests, so even though Babo's got himself a solid base, the job's far from over if he wants his Mughal Empire to be the real deal. So, so far, Mikey, Babo's been able to pick off opponents one by one. But next, the one thing happens that every invader of India has dreaded since Alexander's time. The Indians unite, and they unite behind one of the ablest leaders of his day, a worthy adversary to any would-be empire builder, a guy called Rana Sangha, the leader of the Miwa kingdom. For the first time in a long time, Sangha, he manages to unite virtually all the Rajput clans, 
so successfully that he actually takes the fight to Baba, advancing with a grand coalition of over 100,000 men. So he's actually got a bigger fighting force than Lodi, the, the Sultanate of Delhi. Right. But incredibly, on March the 16th, 1527, once again, Baba comes out on top. He demonstrates his military prowess and his intelligent generalship, you know, with a little help from his superior weaponry, it has to be said. And Sangha is defeated at the Battle of Kanwa in present-day Rajasthan. Now look, there are a few more battles here and there, but that's the decisive one, and Baba knows he's done it. He moves his capital from Kabul to Agra, where of course one of his successors, Shah Jahan, would later build the, the Taj Mahal, and the Mughal Empire is born, an empire which would dominate the Indian subcontinent even longer than the Ghaznavids. We're talking almost 300 years. Wow. So there we go, Mikey. That's my hero for today. A great tactician, a great leader, and quite remarkably, he also found time to author his famous memoir, The Baba Nama, as well as beautiful music, lyrical works known as the Ghazals, treatises on Muslim jurisprudence, poetry, and even a special calligraphy known as Kati Baburi. Yeah, hang on. He's also remembered in some quarters, Paul. He's a bit of a howler, is that right? <laughs> yes, Maggie, that's true. And it is important that we recognise that. You see, Babo, he dies not long after the last of his major battles in 1530. And although he's at first buried in Agra, later, in accordance with his original wishes, his remains are actually moved to Kabul and reburied there. Yet, interestingly, he's not that particularly revered in Afghanistan today, even though, in contrast, he still ranks as a national hero in Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan. But as you say, the real issue, that's always going to lie in India. And as you can imagine, the man who cemented Muslim rule over a largely Hindu population for generations, he's not altogether universally admired. And to be fair, Mike, he is probably with just cause. Because, in fact, he himself admits in his autobiography, that book, the Baba Nama I mentioned before, he lays it on the record that his campaigns in India deliberately targeted Hindus and Sikhs, as well as apostates, the, the non-Sunni Muslims. And this book states that an immense number were pretty ruthlessly slaughtered with his forces, so it said, building towers of skulls of the infidels outside their camps. But then again, I suppose compared to what the Portuguese were doing at the time, then of course what the Brits did later on. Exactly. Okay, folks, so we're talking the Mughals, and we're talking Baba, the founder of that great dynasty. And just as I thought, Mikey's been licking his lips the whole time because I know he's been dying to talk about curry again. Well, yes, mate. Well, here's the thing. I'm going to start in the 1980s, strangely enough. In the 1980s, we started hearing a phrase called fusion cuisine, mm -hmm. the art of cross-cultural cooking. Yeah. And mate, like a lot of things from the 1980s, it was complete nonsense. <laughs> We've been adapting and borrowing from other countries' recipes ever since we started cooking. Right. So you've been talking about the Mughal Empire. Here's the thing. It created probably the greatest fusion cuisine on the planet at the time. Mm. Taking from the West, Turkish recipes, which also bumped up against Mediterranean cooking, mm -hmm. then absorbing Iranian cooking, Indian recipes, Muslim cooking, as well as Hindu Rajput recipes. And let's not forget, there was that part of northern India that bordered Tibet and southern China, so you got influences coming from that part of the world as well. Right. Think of a Mughal banquet like a cross-cultural smorgasbord. I mean, without pork, and in Hindu households, without beef, too. Although, of course, we talked about the Portuguese coming. They they did bring the pork into their curries down in Goa, didn't they? Exactly, mate. Here's the thing about the Mughal table. It's rich with butter, cream, milk, saffron, cardamom, black pepper, and lots of nuts and dried fruits. 
And this tradition of mixing things up, it goes back as far as your man Baba. And one of my favourite stories about Baba is when he gets to India, he goes berserk for fish and shellfish. <laughs> well, he's been stuck up in the mountains for most of his life. In Central Asia, of course. Exactly. Now, one of the major influences on the Indian Muslim cuisine, apart from the obvious dietary restrictions, was rice dishes, particularly pots of spice rice and meats that are amongst Baba's particular favourites. And of course, that brings in the Iranian tradition, doesn't it? Because it would have been from the Iranian and the Persian pilaf that you'd get your Indian biryanis. Exactly, mate. It's a straight line. Now, another thing too, they do say that they invented kebabs, but let's face it, every cult of the barbecue says they invented kebabs. But yet, yeah, there is an argument to it. One of the strange things, though, amongst all these new fruits, Barber never took a shine to mangoes. Apparently, the smell of melons would make him homesick, but he couldn't stand mangoes. Fortunately, though, his successors, well, they love mangoes, and they actually <laughs> developed their cultivation. And here's the thing, mate. For many years in Mughal India, a gift of mangoes was a common political bribe. Right. Now, Humayun... Oh, Baba's son, the second emperor. Yeah, well, through his wife, Hamida, a real heavy hand with saffron. Is, in fact, the word saffron's going to keep popping up a lot. A lot of saffron turns up into the royal kitchen, which is very much a Persian tradition. Mm -hmm. And those fruits and nuts I mentioned earlier. But, but his favourite treat, actually, mate, was fruit-flavoured sherbets yeah. made from ice brought down from the mountains, mm. which is another thing, too. It shows exactly how opulent their cuisine was. Mm. Similarly, later on, Akbar, probably the Mughal's most illustrious ruler, the man who took the empire basically as far as it could go, Akbar's wife, Joda Day, she introduced more Persian ingredients and helped to popularise one of my favourite dishes, goat curry. Mm. It's under her instruction that many of the sauce-heavy curries are incorporated into Mughal cuisine. Mm. She loved her dairy. <laughs> In fact, she was credited with dazzling the court with a rainbow-coloured yoghurt. Ah. There's a political point to this. This culinary experimentation is thanks to her husband's expansion through both conquest and alliances because it's under Akbar's rule that food from all corners of India was combined with those earlier recipes and cooking styles. Mm. There was one big concept with Mughal cuisine through this whole period. It was the opulence of ingredients. I said before they used a lot of saffron. And it's still one of the most expensive commodities on earth. And this is combined with time-consuming preparation and extravagant presentation. Look, it's a fair enough comment that for centuries the Mughal court was something of a pinnacle in royal court cuisine, only really rivaled by the emperors of China. Mm. Now, the fifth Mughal emperor, Shah Jahan... The, the guy we talked about with the Taj Mahal. Yeah, yeah. Also a big believer in the healing properties of turmeric, mm -hmm. cumin and coriander, as well as, well, he thought that dried chilli would ward off evil spirits. <laughs> but here's the thing, mate. That is basically the flavour profile of many, many curries we still eat today. The basic building blocks, right. Yes, mate. But here's the thing. After centuries of opulence, one Mughal leader actually went against the tradition. Aurangzeb. 1658 to 1707. Now, he was a devout and notoriously thrifty man. Mm -hmm. Under his rule, the famously decadent Mughal feast was paired back to a more mundane and vegetarian affair, but still very tasty. So it wasn't always opulent. But here's the thing, Paulie. The next time you order a biryani, buttered chicken, which I know is a frequent choice in your household. <laughs> yeah, both my kids, they love their buttered chickens. Or samosas, or even baklava, would you believe? It doesn't matter where you get your takeaway. You've got to thank the moguls. All right, folks, so there you go. Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media. Same as usual, your Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whichever you prefer. That's right. And always the same handle, at the rest is hist. The rest is hist. 
and you'll find all that in the show notes. And whenever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment on whichever platform you happen to use. It's always great to get your feedback. Yeah, keep it all coming. We're having lots of fun out there, lots of extra stories. And maps. There's always more maps. <laughs> right, which brings us to next week. And while the real estate market in Australia seems to be plummeting, we're going to look back in history at some of the greatest deals of all time. Mm-hmm.